Hello, I'm Nathan Robinson, editor of Current Affairs magazine. This episode of the Current Affairs podcast is part of Jubilee Week, seven days of incredible interviews that we're releasing as part of our campaign to raise money to expand our magazine and improve our coverage in 2020. If you like this interview, please consider donating to our Kickstarter campaign. Visit kickstarter.com slash project slash 804-992239 slash help dash current dash affairs dash expand dash in dash 2020. The URL is also available in the show notes. Current Affairs has no advertisers or investors. We're 100% supported by readers and listeners, and we need your help to grow our magazine and build a serious, independent, left competitor to the mainstream media. Thank you for listening, and we appreciate your support. Hey, Current Affairs listeners, this is Lyda Gold, your Amusements and Managing Editor. I have a very special treat for you today. I am recording this episode from the home of Barbara Ehrenreich. That's the legendary writer and leftist organizer. He's also one of my personal heroes. This is really exciting for me. Thanks for letting me invade your home today. Oh, thank you for invading my home. (laughs) So I want to start with your most recent book, with Natural Causes. It's a book that came out last year. So overall, through a lot of your works, I think it's fair to say that one of your major themes has been myth, specifically deconstructing these very popular American myths. These myths are so deeply ingrained in our consciousness that we often don't even realize that they're there and that they're happening. So in Natural Causes, this time you go after these myths that surround death and our wellness culture. So my, my first question is, why did you choose to bust that particular myth of, of wellness? I guess it's a deep stream of meanness coming out. <laughs> of course, I went after optimism and <laughs> positive thinking. And so, of course, I had to go after wellness. <laughs> oh, and mindfulness. Yes. So, you, you know, I don't know what this says about me, but... <laughs> Anything that's like a little bit too sticky and sweet and everything. You must be destroyed. Yeah. But why did I start thinking about writing about this? Mm-hmm. Well, because I was at the age where, you know, you got Medicare and the medical system wants to extract as much as it can from you. Mm-hmm. So I was always being taught by doctors that I should undergo this test or that test. And, and I started questioning these things, one after another, driving the doctor's nuts, but, I mean, also thinking, I, I, do I want to spend my time doing mm-hmm. this? It's, you know, if you, if you ask they, like something like bone density scanning, you're much too young to know about <laughs> this, but they, they're going to want to do it to you probably at some point. So you say, okay, suppose you find something bad. How can you fix it? Do you have something? What do you, what do you recommend then? Oh, uh, that's where it gets a little hazy. Mm. And so I found out from the bone density scan that I have, quote, osteopenia, which means sort of the, the bones are getting frail. Well, everybody, if you do research, <laughs> you quickly find that every woman over the age of about 35 has some degree of osteopenia. It's just what happens to us. And, and there aren't reliable cures, mm-hmm. and vitamin D and calcium don't do much, so... You know, then you say, okay, brush this one off. And one after another, mm-hmm. they propose a test, and I'd say, uh-uh, after a little research. So that became my stance, my angry <laughs> stance for old age, is that, you know, I'd rather, I don't want to spend my time in windowless doctors' waiting rooms. Mm-hmm. And why they're all windowless, I don't know. But things take their course, and... 
and then bring on the palliative care, please. <laughs> You're very critical in the book of these sort of unnecessary tests like uh, mammograms or uh, PSA tests, which my, my dad had what he thinks was prostate cancer because he had a, you know, a bad PSA score once and they did the whole invasive thing that was like 10 years ago. And I read this in your book with just absolute horror because, you know, how do I tell my dad that maybe he didn't need to get this done? No, that's, uh, they're no longer, I mean, I say in the book what, you know, what professional organizations say, nope, don't do the PSA test. Mm -hmm. Because the, the hazards of getting a false positive are so great. Same with mammograms. Mm -hmm. You know, they hazard, you know, could, you could be forced to have a biopsy, mm -hmm. which is... Surgery, where you're put under complete anesthesia and a chunk of your body is taken out. No. There's a lot, you know, all usually mm -hmm. to no purpose. Right. Now, I had breast cancer and a mammogram that revealed it too late. I, I could mm. already tell there was something yeah. really wrong. I don't recommend screening mammograms. I wouldn't be surprised if you've gotten some negative pushback yep. from people <laughs> upset with you for Why saying this. Why is this woman trying to kill us? <laughs> but the idea is that if something's wrong, you'll know it's wrong and you'll go to the doctor. No, I say, you know, I didn't advise my daughter, mm -hmm. who's in her 40s, to have a mammogram. Mm -hmm. She read what I'd written and she just decided not to. So you haven't forced anyone not to do it, but if they... If they oh, no, I just say you should know this is yeah. questioned mm -hmm. and that the number of things like mammograms and colonoscopies that mm -hmm. are done in this country is way out of line from that in mm -hmm. comparable countries. And mm -hmm. it's it's a cash grab, is yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially for, for Medicare. You talk in the book a lot about how this unnecessary testing and, and a lot of uh, what we do in a doctor's office is, is an aspect of ritual. Mm -hmm. And there's a great deal of magical thinking that goes into it. I mean, the doctor, you know, waves the scanner over you and mm -hmm. tells you that you're okay or that you're not okay. And there's something very damaging about this kind of magical thinking. Is there any damaging about it? Mm -hmm. Well, it reinforces a dependency on doctors. Yeah. And... The doctors are certain kind of people in the professional middle class. They're usually white. There are more and more women, and I can part of the movement that can take credit for that. But I don't like this sort of intimate ritual as a way of reinforcing that kind of social dependency. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what goes on with this sort of priesthood of, of doctors and a priesthood of, you know, you get your tests done, you get mm -hmm. all these preventative things, you get your physical is that there's this, uh, this moral judgment that goes into it, right? There's this idea that if, if you fail to prevent something, it's your fault. Oh, in this country, in our culture, mm -hmm. we have transformed the whole notion of morality mm -hmm. from how we treat other people and so on to how healthy are we, mm -hmm. how healthy is our behavior. I'm so sick of that. <laughs> and I get it from so many friends. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody, she's... So-and-so's really good about her diet, or so-and-so yeah. doesn't take care of herself. This should not be this should not be where we locate our moral judgments. Mm -hmm. and, and it doesn't make sense either. You've got this amazing paragraph in the book, and I'm just going to quote from it. You talk about uh, John H. Knowles, who was the director of the Rockefeller Foundation, and I'm quoting now, a uh, promulgator of what became known as the doctrine of personal responsibility for one's health. 
Most illnesses are self-inflicted, he argued, the result of gluttony, alcoholic intemperance, reckless driving, sexual frenzy, and smoking, as well as other bad choices. The idea of a right to health, he wrote, should be replaced by the idea of an individual moral obligation to preserve one's own health. But he died of pancreatic cancer at the age of 52, prompting mm. one physician commentator to observe that clearly we can't always be held responsible for our health. No, I had a malicious pleasure in this book, <laughs> looking at these people who are the real health gurus mm-hmm. at, at different times. Right. And seeing how they died anyway. Yeah, it doesn't help. <laughs> and, I, you know, that doesn't prove anything. Mm-hmm. Not to say he was wrong about his diet and everything, but we are going to die. Yeah. And that does seem to be the, the thing that people can't acknowledge, is that they will die. Yeah. Yeah. And... No amount of wellness is going to fend that off. Mm-hmm. But wellness, anyway, is more of a leisure activity for the rich mm-hmm. than anything else. So that was another thing I wanted to ask you about, because there's a real connection that you draw in the book between this this theme of having control over your body and also just the, the rich people who promulgate these ideas and that they benefit from it. And, and it's great that you, when you're elucidating intellectual history, you're not just, these aren't just like random ideas. There are people who espouse these for a reason. They've got names, they've got bank accounts. There are good reasons why they do this. And they, they do it to, they do it to make money and they do it to enforce certain kinds of class structures too. Are you thinking people like Gwyneth Paltrow? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the model of wellness that she and others of her ilk propagate is basically a kind of consumerism Mm -hmm. you know you should have these products you should be rubbing them into your skin you should be curating your meals Mm -hmm. you should you know every item that you consume should be justified (laughs) in in some way and yeah there's a a lot of money in this and it takes a lot of time to -hmm. pursue wellness I imagine I was fascinated by these luxury wellness spas mm-hmm. that have sprung up all over the world where you go for a couple of weeks and, you know, you can chant and meditate and even dance with the natives. Oh, God. <laughs> you can't just say, I'm going on a vacation. Mm-hmm. You're working on your wellness and paying somebody a huge amount for it. Another book of yours that I read that I really enjoyed was Bait and Switch, where you talk about middle managers who've been laid off. And then they, they go to these sort of, it's a really dressed down version of a retreat where they, you know, these like crappy hotel uh-huh. ballrooms sound awfully depressing. Where they, This was depressing research. <laughs> this was sound very bad. hard. <laughs> yeah, it's, it sounds pretty bleak in your book. You describe it really well. But it seems kind of similar where, you know, it's, you had to be sort of working on not being unemployed all of the time. And if you weren't working, it was, it was your fault that mm-hmm. you were still unemployed. It was your fault that you were still poor. Mm-hmm. There seems it's to be a real connection. Well, it's all the it's always blame the victim, mm-hmm. a theme and the conservative approach to poverty. Anything wrong with you? It's your own damn fault. Pull yourself together. I, I sat through sat through a lot of these sessions on how to think positively mm-hmm. about your future and about yourself, and get up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, "You're great, Barbara." You can do it, you know, and, and, and repeat affirmations like that all day. And I'm looking around me, these people who are totally expressionless. You know, they have lost their jobs, lost their income, lost 
whatever structure they had to their days. And so they fill their time with this kind of crap. And, of course, they're paying for it. Another book of yours, which I think you wrote after Bait and Switch, is Bright Sided. And you talk a lot about this positive thinking. You sort of trace the origins of it and what a, a cult it's become and how common it is and how much you know, people go to these mega churches and they really buy into the prosperity gospel and this idea that they can mm-hmm. just sort of, you know, the secret, they can like wish themselves mm-hmm. rich. And you have this great quote in, in Brightside. You're quoting from T. Harv Eckers, his Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. And he tells you to place your hand on your heart and say, I admire rich people, I bless rich people, I love rich people, and I'm going to be one of those rich people. <laughs> It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't know about positive thinking mm-hmm. really until I had breast cancer mm-hmm. and started looking into the kind of anthropology of the whole pink ribbon cult. Yeah. And, you know, going to all the available websites, reading all the pamphlets and books and about how you can, you, you will get better if you think positively, if you're sure that your outcome is going to be good. You will be all right, which just infuriated me beyond belief because you're saying to people, you know, again, it's your own fault. Mm-hmm. And I even had a, a little inter- exchange with a woman, I think in Australia, who was dying, mm. stage four. And she said, This is not my fault. You know, but so many people die thinking they're to blame. Because they fail to think positively enough. Not just breast cancer, but other cancers. That's cruel. Yeah. And there's no science that you, you point out. There's no science whatsoever to support this oh, idea. Oh, well, there's a whole big brand of pseudoscience mm-hmm. called positive psychology. It's uh, bizarre to me reading about that. I'd never heard of it until I ran across it in your book. It is bizarre. And the more I dug into it, the worse it got. What's the word? I want to say shyster, mm-hmm. but is that is it still a word? I think that's still okay. okay. My father <laughs> used to use that word. Who train people to train other people to think mm-hmm. positively, and they they have implanted themselves in universities and institutes around much of the, especially English speaking world. Mm-hmm. Do um, they run into trouble with other psychologists who are you know of a more traditional bent? Is this a, is there a clash? You know, that's a good question. You try to locate them in the context of what's going on in psychology as a discipline. And what seemed pretty clear is that in the seventies and eighties, once there were antidepressant pills, mm-hmm. I guess it would be the eighties, the psychologists were in big trouble. You know, what were they doing if everything could be handled with Prozac? So they said, all right, forget the people who are actually miserable now and depressed and anxious. Let's go after the much larger market of people who are fine but could be better. <laughs> and that became the new pitch from psychology. Yeah, you're you're doing all right, but imagine how much better you could do if you just pumped up your positive thinking habits. And it's funny because in a lot of ways that's like the medical testing that, you know, you're a perfectly healthy person but here you should undergo this battery of tests just in case because you could be better. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's really remarkable. And it, it's it's fascinating how many different aspects of our lives. And that was one of the, the experience of reading your books is like 
really showed me that like how many aspects of our lives, the positive thinking and victim blaming, how much of that it touches its health, its wealth, it's, it's mm-hmm. all of these different parts. And it's so ingrained. I've heard people say variations on like happiness is a choice. Well, which is such a bizarre poverty is a choice yeah. to everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, these it's just it's just bizarre how common it's become and with remarkably little pushback, I would say. I guess I would blame psychology itself, the, mm-hmm. the more mainstream psychology, for its extreme individualism. Mm. If you talk to a therapist, you're going to be talking about yourself. Mm-hmm. They're not gonna want to hear about class and race and gender and, and except for how are you dealing with these little obstacles. You know, the, the, there's no way of seeing things in a more social or collective way, which is what we have to do if we look at a person who's been laid off from his or her job or experienced some other kind of blow. You can't just look at the individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess the argument is, oh, there's like little adjustments you could make tiny little ones, but none of that is going to get you a new job or, you know, stop people being racist to you. Those are larger social issues and they're not solvable by a psychiatrist's office. <laughs> oh, that'd be interesting to see them try that with race. <laughs> and it would be. And maybe that's the next frontier for this yes. kind of thinking. <laughs> oh, that's a horrible thought. You, you talk a lot about what, what ha- really has been the next frontier in this. In, in Natural Causes, you talk about mindfulness. And that is the new, the new fashion and the new trend. And it's a trend that you point to as being in, sort of created, the problem was created by Silicon Valley and also solved by them because, you know, everybody's so busy they're so, you know, all, and they're so distracted. But then mindfulness came along and, and mindfulness could be sold as a product. You know, it's, it, it, many things got it off the ground. Conferences in the Bay Area to talk about mindfulness and books, a few books anyway. We're too distracted to read books, but <laughs> mostly it was apps. I bought a few of them, and I couldn't get through. I couldn't get very far. They would start with some, you know, nice, no, not to mean nice, mm-hmm. but some kind of soothing music, and it, on your screen would be a kind of a calendar picture of nature, and then you were supposed to enter into a, a few minutes of meditation, which would make you mindful the rest of the day. Now, I just, yeah, we have to pay attention. It's true. But pay attention to what? I mean, if you're a working parent, as I always was and am, what do you do? You finish writing the urgent email to the boss, or do you pick up the toddler who's screaming on the floor? Mindfulness does not answer that question for you. It doesn't even answer the question, you know, a bigger question, why are you being put in that position? Why is it your child care? And so why are your hours so long? I can't stand it. You know, I I do get emotional about these things because they are so, there's so much entitlement and so much class privilege built into it. Mm -hmm. You know, I first encountered this in the Bay Area from a, a rich lady who happened to be my landlord for a few months while I was teaching at the Berkeley Journalism School. And I never had heard the word before, but she told me, very mindful of the precious objet she had in the apartment. It was just Martha Stewart kind of crap. 
<laughs> but, you know, I never heard that. But I, then I saw it was kind of, I began to identify it as a kind of a rich people's thing. Yeah, one thing you, you really bring up is, is it sort of came from Buddhism, but it's been really like shorn of all meaning and value that it's mindfulness is just, you. There, there's no getting rid of the ego as you're supposed to do in, in Buddhism when you're meditating, but it is just the ego and the ego being aware of things. And you're just supposed to like, oh, look, I am so aware. Look how aware I am. So other people can say how aware you are. No, it was my, my son actually pointed out. He had gone through a little Buddhist phase in college. And he said, you know, that it, it's Buddhism, but without the idea of transcendence. Mm. Without the least idea of, you know, we're transcending the self into, you know, a, a different relationship with you. With the world, the universe, that you won't find that in my premise. One of the things that's it's interesting because it's such a Bay Area, Silicon Valley kind of thing is these are especially like the the sort of tech titans of Silicon Valley. These are, are men who are you know, people regard them as being great scientific minds and mm-hmm. being these, these these brilliant scientists, and that they ha- they dabble in this weird pseudo mysticism that is shorn of all of its magic. Mm-hmm. but still derives from that. And nobody seems to notice that there's anything weird about it because there's been this sort of strange marriage, I think you point this out, between these two concepts. Yeah, you know, it's odd because Silicon Valley has a heavy, heavy population of engineers mm-hmm. and people are had some smattering of science in their backgrounds, but they don't even seem to have noticed the studies that show that the, you know, the few minutes of intermittent um, meditation that you get from your app do nothing. Oh, and um, even longer periods of um, meditation, like say ten minutes, so that would demand a lot. Mm-hmm. You do just as well in terms of whatever they're doing to measure the lack of stress hormones in your body, just by having a glass of wine with a friend, or you know, taking a, a long walk or something like that. Mm-hmm. Their the selling is, yeah, they created the problem in, in so many ways with all the devices, but they haven't found the solution. Yeah. And, there's, and it's interesting that there's a real lack of interest in the actual science and in the, the process yeah. of science. Yeah, now they seem to be extremely vulnerable to huckster, hucksterism. I mean, some of the characters mm-hmm. that got the mindfulness movement off the, the ground... One of them actually was a former clown. Really? In the UK. I can't remember what his name, but he's in there. Makes me think, I could walk in there and sell them something. <laughs> it kind of like makes you tempted to get in on this grift. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> it's working for What them. are we doing? Well, and I read a lot about this idea of mind uploading and biohacking, and I have these very earnest young men telling me that this is a thing that's going to happen that all our minds are going to be uploaded to, to a cloud. And, and as I was reading mm-hmm. Natural Causes, you mentioned how doctors are taught to think of the body as inert because they're taught on cadavers and they're taught on you know cells that are you know dissected and put into the slide. It almost feels like there's a connection there between this idea of the, the body as something that can be conquered and hacked, and even the mind is something that can be conquered mm-hmm. and hacked, and the idea of the body being dead. I think so. I mean, a very deep philosophical issue that I tried to raise in natural causes. It comes from this 
fundamental notion of Western science for hundreds of years now that the natural world is dead. Mm-hmm. And the only agency in the natural in world is ourselves and then that monotheistic God mm-hmm. who's so far away. So, yeah, the, the body just becomes dead matter to be manipulated or poisoned with various kinds of things. And, and I'm calling for a whole different approach, which is based in, in this book, Natural Causes, on science. Mm-hmm. The growing science that shows that individual cells in our body have agency. That absolutely blew my mind. Oh, me too. <laughs> that is great. So you describe it, it's not exactly like uh, macrophages you talk about specifically. They don't have consciousness exactly, but they do seem to have volition of a sort. Well, yeah, I mean, they're, and this was like a total surprise to me. I mean, when I, when I was a graduate student in cell biology, mm-hmm. nobody for one moment would have uttered the phrase, Cellular decision-making. Now it's a subject of international conferences. There's a recognition that in some sense, and maybe decide is not the right word, mm-hmm. I don't know, but it's not that, that different from the, the analogy I gave was me walking down a crowded sidewalk. I'm getting a lot of information all the time. Is somebody going to bump into me and... I'm going to get run over by a car or whatever. Just as a macrophage is constantly getting, or any cell, getting signals from other cells in the body. And then these signals have to be integrated in some way. For me, that might be a decision to walk a little faster or Mm -hmm. get out of the way of somebody or something. For a macrophage, it might be get out of here or come over, come to where we are. You know, there's something Mm -hmm. good to eat over here. Macrophages are eat things. Yeah. (laughs) They're big cells, they're immune system cells, right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And macrophage means big eater. Pretty descriptive. So one of the things you talk about, which was also just really, really horrifying, is that macrophages gather at the site of cancer. And the idea initially was that, oh, they must be trying to help. You know, they must be trying to eat the cancer cells. But it turns out they're very much helping the cancer spread. And that's part of how a metastasis happens. I just felt that as treason. Absolutely. I had done my graduate work on macrophages with the firm idea that they were the good guys. When anything goes wrong in the body, it's their job to rush over, eat it. If it's a bacteria or virus, they're our defense. And so when a scientist, it really, at the or near the turn of the 20th century, I mean near the beginning of the 20th century, began to observe macrophages crowding around tumors, they said, ah, they're fight tumor. Well, surprise. <laughs> yeah, we now know that they actually conduct individual cancer cells into the bloodstream where they can go on to colonize other areas of the body. And we know this because there's remarkable developments in microscopy, the ability to observe individual cells in the body. Mm -hmm. I I just was so amazed by that. But that's what's fun. Some books I've written, you know, I had the idea, followed by outline, I wrote the book. Other ones, oh, no, it's... <laughs> just, it must be in the middle of your research just completely sending you off on a different track. 
Well, somewhat, but also if it's fun to be surprised. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Well, and that's one of the remarkable things. And and you're a person who has a you have a PhD in cellular biology, and and it's something you've studied quite a lot. And you are a scientifically minded person. Things change all of the time. They get we get new information. We learn Mm -hmm. new things. And so when in the context of medical science, when the doctors say, "Oh, this is this, and this is how you have to be." And this is the kind of test you have to submit to, and this is how you have to think about your cells. You have to imagine that your your immune cells are good little soldiers. And then the, the science doesn't support that, and probably we'll learn a lot more about how immune systems really work. You know what's very surprising to me is how nervous scientists were about talking to me about this. Really? There was a woman in London who I particularly wanted to talk to because she was one of the ones who discovered this a way that immune cells were helping cancer cells, she would never return a phone call. I mean, I tried writing and everything. I'd call and say, they'd say, well, she's in the lab right now, and so on. And I identified myself in every possible way. I said a PhD in biology, Rockefeller University, which is totally prestigious, and so nothing. I finally talked to the Italian scientist she had worked with, and it just didn't strike him as very interesting. Really? Yeah. When I told him about cellular decision-making, he just laughed. Oh. I said, you know, like, man, it's all over the place. Go to Google, you know. They get stuck in their little paradigms. And that's, that's very frustrating to me. Cause there's so many things that I see in my readings of science and sort of scientifically, so I say, oh. Everybody should be throwing up their hands and say, we've got to start all over. We've got to, you know, integrate this. But there's a tendency, you know, nobody wants to leap out in front and be identified as a nutcase because something doesn't work out. Better to stick with what's tried and mm-hmm. safe. And it's funny because it's so antithetical to what the scientific method is for and what it's supposed to do and then the knowledge that we're supposed to gain from it. I think we need actually a a sort of field of science criticism, mm. which I would like to found. And, so, you know, that there should be people who are watching what's going on and who will say, this changes everything. Now think about that. You know, if cells can think for themselves into some whatever tiny degree, then what the hell am I? You know, yeah. I'm just a, a collection I am multitudes, as Walt Whitman said, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and the role that our the bacteria and our, our guts play, oh, yeah, too, which yeah. is they're alien creatures, and they're mm-hmm, a huge part mm-hmm. of, of our biology. Yep. Yeah, all of that. Talk a bit about this idea of the unitary self, and about the, I mean, that is what, you know, mindfulness is supposed to do. You're supposed to look, you know, you, the individual, is to locate yourself in yourself and right. stay with yourself, and you have control over yourself, and just this paradigm isn't true. It just doesn't make any sense scientifically. You know, I talk in Natural Causes about the rise of the idea of the self. Mm -hmm. Because this is not something our species is born with. But the idea that there's some kind of hardcore of barbarous in Mm -hmm. me, distinct from you in your own kernel of selfness, it sort of, it arises slowly. In the book I said, I was tracing it to, like, the 17th, 16th centuries. Now I would go back farther, because of what I'm working on right now. For some reason, and it had to do with Donald Trump, Mm. partly because I needed to escape. 
I needed some way, something to do. And, I, and since I can't do the self-care wellness things <laughs> that were being recommended for Democrats at that time, I got really interested in Paleolithic cave art. Oh, neat. Yeah, it's a... <laughs> and I, I can't explain exactly why, but it had to do with Trump's narcissism. And I thought, narcissism, where does that come from? You know, what is... Because there's the, the swollen self that mm-hmm. eats everything else up. And I noticed that in Paleolithic cave art, there are very few human-type creatures. You know about this? Yeah, it's, it's usually deer, it's usually prey and it's, predators. Yeah, yeah, right. Megafauna, mm-hmm. we experts call them. The human-like creatures have no faces. They're stick figures. No faces. They, they can't be, I mean, you could say there's individuals, there's some famous bit of cave art where the guy, I suppose it's a guy, is walking around with a stag's head. Mm. And they said, maybe that's how he's distinguishing himself. He must be a shaman. How do you know he's not just wearing a party hat? <laughs> you know, so that, that put it, for me, pushes back the invention of the self mm-hmm. to much much earlier, probably. Mm-hmm. Now I would put it more around the Bronze Age. There's this, an idea of a soul. Would you say that those are similar enough, or is that really kind of a different thing? Well, the soul is a self that is defined by another entity, a deity. It's our connection to that hypothetical being. The self is something we should be able to apprehend without that. It's a secular mm-hmm. idea. That's a, that's a good distinction. I like that a lot. Oh, I'm excited for your new book. This is going to be really fascinating. Well, it's not a book. Yeah, oh, okay. I'm working for the first I do an article. Oh, okay. I like to uh, do that first and then see if I want to keep working on it for however much time I have left. So it's a good time to segue action to my favorite book of yours, which is Living with a Wild God. And I mentioned earlier that it was my favorite before we started the recording, and you were surprised that it would be a favorite. You say you don't hear that very often. Well, I actually do get letters from a lot of people who say they had similar experiences. And if I was a good person, I would collect all those letters and try to derive something mm-hmm. from all these various reports. But I'm not that good of a person. <laughs> it's a lot of work, too, to be fair. Yeah. yeah. So, no, there are people who, I think, felt very encouraged and liberated mm-hmm. by the book. And there are others who just thought I had gone completely around the bend. <laughs> So, Living with a Wild God, for those of our listeners who haven't read it yet, it's, I think it's a really special book. It's a really unusual book. I don't know why any like it. Where you talk about, as a young atheist and as somebody who was trying very hard at a very early age, you know, as a teenager, to figure out what the point of life was, you had a series of experiences, one in particular, where you had a kind of transcendent moment. Well, and this may be my mature animism speaking. Mm-hmm. But I no, I think I said it even in the book that the world became alive. Mm-hmm. Everything became alive. I saw something living, you know, glowing from everything in my visual field and and afterwards could not describe it. And then when that that went away, then I became like totally bereft mm-hmm. and confused and depressed. But it comes back now and then little bits and pieces. 
You still see it sometimes. She said a light, right? Light is one of the, the, the triggers for it. You need to have a lot of light yeah. and flatness. Yeah, no, light has something to do with it. And I mean, I don't go looking for it. Mm. I don't have any spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. But I'm open to it. And if it wants to happen again, <laughs> that'd be pretty cool. Go right ahead. <laughs> in the lead up to talking in the book about the, this experience they had, a series of experiences, you talk about how as a teenager you had, you experienced a kind of like extreme solipsism, which I think a lot of teenagers go through, but you're, oh, just, yeah. you're really honest about it in the book. I think it's the difference. Mm-hmm. Where you really thought of yourself as being the only person, you could shut out the existence of other people when they were being trouble for you. It's interesting because that there's such a. That solipsism that you grew out of, and you grew out of because of these experiences that you had, and because of some other things that, that you, you, I'm gonna, I want to bring up later, that solipsism is so much like this excessive focus on the self and this cult of the self and then the wellness cult that we hear about. And it's, it's interesting that it's something that you experienced when you were young and experienced it as a, as a growth stage rather than arriving at it as, as an adult. I think there's a bright side to solipsism. (laughs) (laughs) I'm never going to write the book. (laughs) Mostly what you're thinking about when you think about the self is really not yourself, whatever that means, but what other people think of you. Mm -hmm. You know, if people are unfollowing you on Twitter, if you are snubbed by someone you thought you wanted to impress and things like that, those turn into judgments and if you're a nut case like the president, mm-hmm. you can't stop dwelling on them. Mm-hmm. Every slight, every you know, failure to recognize your genius and so on. And so it's almost sometimes a good idea not to care what other people think. <laughs> I, I, I invoked this in myself. Um, I got one, one particularly nasty review of Living with a Wild God. Oh. Or scorching. I didn't read too far into it, but I, but I said to myself, wait a minute, I'm going to be affected? I'm not sure this guy really exists. <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to just put, you know, and then I thought, oh, right side of solipsism. I can just, you know, I don't have to pay attention to everybody. I mean, these days he could be a bot. He could be a bot. So, I mean, <laughs> frankly, the only reason somebody wouldn't like this book is that they're a bot. So that's so interesting. So they're not quite identical, solipsism and narcissism. They're sort of related, but it's, it is a different way of approaching. Well, a hardcore solipsist mm-hmm. would not be that concerned about the opinions of others. Mm-hmm. What others? Yeah. <laughs> you talk about, this is a quote from Living with a Wild God, my adolescent solipsism is incidental compared to the collective solipsism our species has embraced for the last few centuries in the name of modernity, a worldview in which there exists no consciousness or agency other than our own. Pretty tragic. Yeah. I mean, that is very, that was very resonant to me today when I reread this because climate change that comes up so much at the... Mm that, you know, we are causing all of this damage, and it, it damage because of this sort of collective solipsism where we think that we are the only, you know, the, we're the only living beings in, in this dead matter. You know, we, you know, nothing else really is important except our, you know, our constant pursuit of, of wealth. And we've caused this terrible, terrible damage. Oh, God, yeah. This is the kind of thing that keeps taking me back to the Paleolithic. <laughs> because people really did not, the distinctions between human and animal... Mm-hmm say 30,000 years ago, was not that sharp. In fact, the first deities that arise in, not the Paleolithic, but later, are animals, or theriomorphic 
beings. Mm-hmm. That means animal-like or shaped or something. So there, there was a kind of unity across the species that we can't even imagine except in our relationship with our pets. Yeah. We're not, you know, that independent. What do you think, I mean, I know your article's not finished, but what in the course of your research do you think made the change? Why did we lose this relationship we had with animals, the sense of being part of the of the world? Well, we killed them. I mean, that's why there are so many books stacked in the living room about megafauna, <laughs> what happened to them. I mean, this is a big, big question. How much of the disappearance of the megafauna, you're basically animals larger than a dog, a big dog. Mm -hmm. And how much was it climate change or something else that got rid of them? Mm -hmm. But it's pretty incontrovertible that wherever humans went, they wiped out species. And you can just see that in, say, the Pacific Islands, Mm -hmm. from one to the other, the disappearance of things like the dodo, poor mocked (laughs) bird. You know, it kind of coincided with the arrival of humans. In North America, the extinction of so many creatures seems to come about around the time of the arrival of humans from basically Asia. Mm-hmm. And that's one argument, is that we did it. And one of the reasons we did it, was, ways we did it, was through overkill. Mm-hmm. Because what are you going to do when you're a band of little primates running after great big bison? Well, you could use fire and noise and flint-tipped spears to drive them over a cliff. Mm. And, you know, there are such collections now of of bones of edible herbivores Mm -hmm. at the bottom of cliffs. That people were killing far more than they needed to eat. Because the easiest way often to kill them Mm -hmm. was to herd them in some direction or herd them into a narrow pass, then attack them there. So as we got more intelligent and our technologies of violence got better, we hunted less like a wolf that would hunt, you know, as much as it needs to eat, and more in this in this very strange way that no other animal really does. Well, I think the, the thing that allowed this kind of um, overkill, and mm-hmm. there's, there's still a lot of debate about how important was this compared to other things, maybe mm-hmm. it was virus or... There's still debate about it, mm-hmm. but what would have made it possible for humans to do these things was not so much new technology. Mm-hmm. The fire was probably the biggest, and that's really old. Mm-hmm. But the ability to hunt collectively, to mm-hmm. hunt communally. Hunting, we think of as an individual guy going around the woods with a rifle or something. Uh, this was more likely a, the whole band of people, mm-hmm. women and children included trying to get the herd to move over the cliff. So the moral of the story is collectivism is bad. I did not expect that from you. <laughs> Just joking. Well, I know, I know. And there's, but, yeah, it's, that's, that's what made us smart, really. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what made us dominant, ultimately, mm-hmm. is that we could fight predators by banding together. Mm-hmm. You don't do too so well if, the leopard shows up at the fireside and everybody drops their baby and climbs a tree. Mm-hmm. That group is not going to persist very long. But when you learn to form a ring around the most vulnerable members of the group mm-hmm. and confront the predator that way, 
you've got a chance. Similarly with hunting. It's interesting because one one is a technique of protection and then one is a technique of attacking, and it's it just it depends on how you use yeah, collective but, power. Yeah, but we had to we had to band together to do both of those things. Mm-hmm. That is fascinating. It's mostly close out here because I you know, want to talk just a little bit about as a leftist activist in, in the context of living with a wild god because you you talk about one of the things that, that you know what got you out of your your solipsism was partly these experiences you had but also as you wrote that I fell in love with my comrades my children my species so it was like leftist activism it was having children it was starting to appreciate other humans as such so we, we <laughs> sound like such a, <laughs> such a nice case really <laughs> Oh, people. I think I think way more people are solipsistic, probably especially as teenagers, than really admit to it. I, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. But the experience of the movement, as we call mm-hmm. it, you know, the, of having to go out in the streets and talk to people mm-hmm. as I handed them leaflets or whatever, mm-hmm. and be drawn into these encounters and organizing meetings in tenements and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because like we have this you know as you've outlined this very positive side of the collective power and then also this very negative side of collective power that seems like it's kind of baked into our, our well, deep history. Collective power has no moral valence. It's very collective to gather together and shout and chant and march, mm-hmm. but that could be Hitler Youth or that could be you know people. In, in the resistance today against Trump or mm-hmm. something. So there's no morality mm-hmm. just to... So, but it's not a paradigm of just, like, this highly individualized way of thinking versus a collective way of thinking, because that's not no, it's not that no. simple at all. Collective ways of thinking can be really, really, <laughs> really bad. fucked up, too. Yeah, that's certainly, that's certainly the case. Do you think that there's a way in which... Because you talk about this new animism that you, you, you learn from, from these experiences... And as a way of you know seeing the world as being as being alive, like understanding the world as being alive, not just uh, perceiving it that way, just knowing that that is uh, what it's really about. Do you think there's a way that left politics, you know, it's a it's a, a moral thing to do? It's you know it's something that we have to do if we're going to save the planet and you know not die in climate change. But do you think that there's a way in which it can also bring about the sense of the world as being alive that there, we we can sort of connect those ideas? Uh, yeah, I think it would be. It should be part of our, our, our morality, our respect for the natural world and for non-human animals and, and so on, as well as our love for each other in our species. Yeah, I, it's, it's just, it's not there. I am really, really distressed about <laughs> what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, right now. I mean, and I think things kind of peaked for me last Wednesday. Mm. When I read there was 108 and a half degrees Fahrenheit in Paris. Yeah. And then I thought, well, this is it. You know, it's happening. It's really happening. Mm-hmm. And I have grandchildren. Yeah. I don't have to tell you that. <laughs> I'll be dead. You've got to live with it. <laughs> yeah, well, so it, it's, it's definitely a very weird time to be alive. And, I mean, of what you've lived through, I mean, is this, is this as weird as it gets? Is this as kind of as bad as it gets? It is. Yeah. It is, no question. I really didn't want you to say that. I yeah, to, I mean, no, no, I, absolutely. It was this time. In the 80s, you know, nuclear war was mm-hmm. the big thing that united liberals mm-hmm. and people on the left and brought about a million people together once at a demonstration in, 
in New York, but now it's climate change, mm-hmm. and um, and the realization that it's it's not something distant. Yeah. That it's actually yeah. happening. The climate refugees right now, a lot of yeah. Yeah, and so you, you see the the whole south of the globe becoming increasingly uninhabitable. Mm-hmm. My son spent part of the summer on a rescue boat in the Mediterranean. These are non-governmental, non-profit, of course, Mm -hmm. boats that go out and look for people in rafts, basically. Mm -hmm. Generally, trying to get out of Libya, you know, or Syria, and, you know, all kinds of places. You know, he was able to interview, because he's writing about it, Mm -hmm. a lot of these people. And, and, And people, like, from Somalia were saying, Crops don't grow. It's too hot. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you'll have that happening also in the Americas. Yeah. People being driven north because their their own part of the world is becoming uninhabitable. Yeah. So we have basically the political choices corresponding somehow to left and right. Mm-hmm. Is you know on the left we say, let's save as many people as possible. We're all in this together. Mm-hmm you know, our species. Mm -hmm. And the right is saying, you know, Silicon Valley is saying, let's make holes in the earth or go into nuclear silos, abandoned nuclear silos, and turn them into mansions, which they're (laughs) rapidly doing. Or they'll get, you know, somewhere in space, if you're Mm -hmm. Elon Musk. That seems to be the the sort of choices. Mm -hmm. And the wild authoritarian capitalism Mm -hmm. that we see now in so many places, the UK as well as Mm -hmm. Brazil and here and the Philippines, is a mentality that says, let's get what we can while the getting's Mm -hmm. good. That's what we're up against. Yeah, it's pretty terrifying. And it's funny how it's, we're talking about religion, it's very disassociated from any concept of God or punishment or anything like that. Just It makes me want to talk as a, like a Christian mm-hmm. to explain what I think, to explain my politics. Mm-hmm. I'm a Christian who just doesn't buy into the heaven part <laughs> or the or the idea of, of Jesus being a deity. Mm-hmm. But the rest of it, I want to shake people and say, you say you're Christian? Mm-hmm. You have to do these things. Mm-hmm. Or you you know, or you burn in hell. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> we've we've got an article in our our new issue um, which which should be out at the end of the month. It's by one of our editors who's a she's an immigration lawyer and she works out of a baby jail in Texas and it's mm. in defense of hellfire is her article. And it's oh, in defense great. of the concept. Uh, the new one, it's not out yet. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, well, we'll make sure to send you a copy. It's, it's going to be... You no, know, that's, that's another thing that's just been... I cut back on some other lines of work. Like, I'm taking a little time off from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Yeah. Because the immigrants, because the children. Mm-hmm. And you know, helped start a, lo- a local group. Mm-hmm. But the amazing thing is I didn't have to do much because people just pop up. Mm-hmm. They want to do stuff. It doesn't take any selling with this issue. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I can't say I've been doing much work, but helping support a national group that is going to try to pull off a national action like encampments in El Paso mm-hmm. near one of the worst concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Because... You got to. 
Yeah, Brianna, our immigration lawyer, that's that's what she says is the mm-hmm. thing that will make the difference is people marching on the camps themselves. Really? Yeah. She, she, that's what she, I mean, it's the, sort of the one thing she's clinging to is as a thing that might work because just protesting in the streets of Manhattan isn't going to do it. Uh, I, I went to one of the protests. It was in uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey at an ICE facility and some, you know, several people got arrested. And, you know, I just, it, the, that one action alone, I didn't think would make much difference, but all of them together, I think maybe hopefully will, will make mm-hmm. a difference. Now we, we had some people who was actually saying, or among in this group that's talking about national plans, mm-hmm. that we should target the Silicon Valley. Yeah. You know, yeah. That I, I didn't realize that, but so much of the devices for tracking and apprehending, quote, illegals is done by them. Yeah, by Amazon, by Palantir, I think is yeah. a contract. Yeah. Recording this on uh, Tuesday, July 30th, but there's an action today actually in Manhattan, uh, targeting one of those Silicon Valley firms. Oh, good. And I was going to go, but I came to talk to you instead. But Uh-oh. <laughs> I hope this is worth it. Definitely I think worth you it. should have been there. <laughs> so the, that at least is a positive sign. These actions are happening. Hopefully the cumulative part of it will have an effect. Do you have any other recommended actions, recommended organizing tips, things that people should be doing? Well, we've been you know, going back and discussing you know, targeting corporations versus targeting detention camps. Mm-hmm. I don't have a big strategic preference. I would just say whatever is handy, yeah. do it. Yeah. Whatever you can get your neighbors and friends to join in mm-hmm. with, do it. That's, I mean, it's all you can do. and that's. You know, it's, this is so amazing. I mean, this building is not like where you'd expect to find any activists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, there's one or two people that I know and chat with, mm-hmm. and even have a wine with now and then. Mm-hmm. And I ran into this woman in in the garage, and I told her about that I was going to a meeting about the children in concentration camps. And this woman, I kind of very, I'm going to say buttoned down or, mm. you know, but kind of, well, not so many hand gestures as I make. Yeah. <laughs> and um, she started to cry. Oh. She started to cry oh right there. Oh, my God. And she said, I don't cry. I never cry. And then we had a little meeting in town, and we had an immigration lawyer speak mm-hmm. to people. There were tears. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if we can't do this, there's something really wrong. Yeah. It does seem to be a priority, but it's part of the priority of thinking of the world as being alive and other people as mattering and, and recognizing that we can, we actually do have control over other people, you know, we may not be able to keep ourselves from dying, but we can control the conditions around us. We can help other people. Yeah. Yeah. And that should be our focus. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. This was absolutely wonderful. Thanks for listening. Remember, this interview is released as part of our new fundraising campaign. Please consider donating to help Current Affairs get to the next level as we expand our coverage, overhaul our website, and offer new reporting, better magazines, and more great interviews like the one you've just heard. Visit kickstarter.com slash project slash 804-992239 slash help dash current dash affairs dash expand dash in dash 2020, or just check the show notes. Thanks for listening.